All right. Well, here we are again, ladies and gentlemen. It's another episode of the Sons of History podcast. Astros, World Series champs, told you. I don't know if I told you, actually. I don't know if I predicted it. I don't like doing predictions because whenever I predict something, it usually goes wrong. Unlike my good friend on the other side of the aisle, not the political aisle, though, Alan Joaquin. I didn't make any predictions on the Astros. I stayed out of it because, I, hell, I didn't even watch it. So, but I had my reasons, which we don't need to go into details here, but, uh, we won't. Yeah, there you go. So, but I mean, I'm happy for the city and I'm especially happy for Mattress Mac, Jim McInville, that, uh, our not so illustrious county commissioner called a furniture salesman. Did you hear about that? Do what? You didn't hear, uh... Little Lena, that was kind of mocking uh, Mattress Mac. She called because he, because uh, he didn't want her reelected, and uh, yeah, she called him a furniture salesman. Yeah, well, she. I'm not even gonna do it. I'm okay, not I'm even gonna, gonna say it. it. I hope she's indicted. I hope she's indicted. I hope she goes to prison. I hope she goes to prison. I'm gonna say that for the record. <laughs> and there you go. Well, there you go. Well, Mattress Mac won $75 million, uh, biggest payout in sports betting history. Right here in H-Town, bury me in the H. Could not have happened to a better person. The man is a is a humanitarian. That You know, he, I was so impressed when he opened the doors to his... Uh, to gallery furniture and let the homeless, people whose homes were destroyed by the hurricanes... They slept on his furniture. They slept in his bed. Who does that? Yeah. He's a great man. He's a, he's a icon. He's a legend. And it was great to see him come through. You, did, you, did you run across that video of, it was after game three, we got shellacked. They hit five home runs on us, seven to zero loss. We looked bad. And some... Philly fan was going at Mattress Mac, and Mattress Mac apparently had had, he had had enough, and he's like, "F you, F you." <laughs> well, I, I I didn't see that. I I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, well, after that moment, after that game, we won the next three in the World Series. So, well, you and know not what? Just that. I'm not surprised. I mean, that this is the same state that elected a guy that can't even formulate a sentence into the Senate. Dude, I I cannot believe that took place. And here's the question. What is more pathetic that Pennsylvanians voted for robot chicken? Why don't you just stop there? Just stop there. <laughs> pathetic. That's that's all you need to say about Pennsylvanians. Sorry if the, if any uh, of our uh, sorry if you voted for them. This is not directed towards our Pennsylvania fans, but it's is going to be directed to the majority who voted in that election. I, you know, what's more what's more pathetic though to to vote him into office or to lose to Robot Chicken. You, no, well, you, you can't blame it on you. You can't blame it on the on uh, Doctor Oz. Why not? I just did. He lost. Hey, you know what? It's uh, throughout history, people 
peop, good people have been voted uh, Socrates. Socrates wasn't he? Uh, didn't they vote to uh, kill him? Is that is was that his fault or was that the morons who said, "Hey, let's kill him"? No, I, I get it. I get it. You get people who like, look, Lena Hidalgo, like she's obviously crooked as a jaybird and she got reelected. I mean, but look, people, I don't get it, but people like crooked politicians because they keep voting them in. I mean, Republican, Democrat, not all of them are crooks, not all of them, but man, there's a lot of them. Um, all right. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet, subscribe to us on YouTube. You can subscribe to us wherever you're listening on a podcast. If you are listening on the Apple podcast, could you do us a huge fave and leave us a rating and a review? And if you haven't yet, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Alan. Uh I think we're closing in. We just passed like 333,000 views on Jaws, the Jaws clip. Can you believe that? Well, you know, we have a lot of people that are sharing it and sharing it and they're sharing it. So, yeah, but I think that's pretty cool. It is. It is very cool to watch the numbers. It's, it's, it's a fantastic scene. I, you know, I remember when I first watched the movie, I watched it when it came out. Or at least maybe, maybe okay. No, refrain. Not not when it first came out. We saw it about a year, a year or two after it came out when they did a reissue of the movie, uh, because my folks were, my folks saw that there was a naked woman, swimming on the cover of the uh, of the Jaws poster, and you know we were little kids, and so my folks were like, nope, nope, our kids are not gonna watch that movie. However, I had a cousin who was much older. He's like, no, it's a good movie. You, you know, don't worry. You, you, you can't see anything. So uh, my brother and I, we went to go see Jaws with him. This was, I would say, in, in about the same year as Star Wars came out. So, um, but I remember that scene. I didn't know about the Indianapolis at the time. But later on in life, when I watched it again and I found out about the Indianapolis, it was one of the scenes that hit me the hardest. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And speaking of the scene with the naked girl swimming out into the water, don't tell me you weren't don't don't tell me you weren't looking. <laughs> I was like, looking, can you see anything? You know, when, when is, they had is it a reflection? TV? Is the reflection there? You know, when they had it on TV, I got. I mean, my we. My face was right up against the screen trying to see, okay, can I see? You know, I'm like, can I see anything? <laughs> Man, come on. It needs to be a full moon. And we got one We got one full moon. Uh, well, hey, you know what? I, I went to that very beach in, uh, I was in Martha's Vineyard a few years ago, and I went to that very beach where that scene took place. So, Yeah. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. Great movie. Um, you can go on our Facebook page and then watch that clip one of my favorite clips uh of any movie um speaking of favorite things uh how can anyone take seriously what is coming out of arizona and nevada like i don't care who wins i don't care if it's a republican or a democrat how can you take any of that seriously i i think this was all in, it's intentional it is intentional. Um, I do believe that there's a lot of cheating going on because there is no other explanation for it. You have states that are much larger. Like I look at Florida. Florida's already done. They've already finished the count. 
Uh, how is it that in Maricopa County, and by the way, uh, was it Katie Hobbs, who's one of the people running? You know, she's the Secretary of State. They, they, you know, they oversee the election. How how can you have? I, I don't know what the population of Maricopa County is, but how is it that in in uh, counties, precincts in uh, Arizona and in Nevada, that they haven't counted, they haven't finished counting, and yet you have states with a much larger population that they're done. And even here in Harris County, you know, the, uh, the, the, the person that Lena Hidalgo appointed to oversee the election, which is, it's a brand new office, by the way, the, the person that he replaced was an idiot. And now this guy is, is even worse of an idiot. Um, you know, you had, what, 23 precincts where they ran out of paper at, at like between 8 and 10 in the morning. That's intentional. By the way, every single one of those 23 precincts from what they're, they're going to have a lawsuit, every single one of them were all in conservative strongholds. Now, that, that's like flipping a coin and it's landing on, the, on, on you know, you're getting it right 23 times in a row. Can it happen? Sure. But is it, is it plausible? Not really. Yeah, no, not really. Uh, it's, uh, the thing is, is they're trying to make these delays and these issues as if this is the norm. This is normal. This is what is to be expected. Like, no, I remember unless I just, my brain is, was shut off for a long time. I I remember elections, whether it was the presidential election or whether it was just like legislative and governorships. I remember them going into the following night, like you, okay, you're going to wake up and you'll know all of the results because it's going to be early in, you know, the next morning that everything, because there's going to be some outliers that are, but days were like, you know, a weekend and like, are you kidding me? Like there is no excuse for what's going on in this country. Like you have technological advances, but now you're, but you're going backwards in how you're, how, how the results are coming out. Well, I remember the 1976 election when uh, you had Gerald Ford and you had Jimmy Carter, and we went to bed not knowing, not knowing who was going to be elected. Now I remember my folks; they wanted Jimmy Carter at the time. So the next morning they woke us up and they said, "Hey, Jimmy Carter won." So you know we were happy. This is the very next day. Um, the following elections, 80, 84, 88, all the way until 2000. We knew, we knew that night who, who was going to be the uh, who was elected the president, and then all of a sudden, two thousand things started getting screwed up, and um, I, I think I think that this is being done intentionally with, with like I said running running out of paper, running out of paper at ten in the morning. That's not an accident, um, unless you unless the the person running the elections is such a dumbass that that he shouldn't be there yet they they're not firing him you know uh the the previous person in Harris County who oversaw the primaries screwed up just as bad they would not fire her it, she had one job to do this guy same thing this is intentional and i think it's I, I do believe that it's going to get worse sometime you know i i'm going to have to say and and maybe facebook is going to uh, restrict me, but but I, I'm I'm seriously thinking that they delay, 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 so that they can find 
enough votes to overcome. And, you know, because they're sitting saying, oh, we found another 10,000 ballots in somebody's trunk. I, I don't I don't buy that. I, I don't I just don't buy that. I don't either, because nobody in their right mind is going to have 10,000 ballots in their trunk and forget. So stupid. And it's like people will say, oh, you can't don't question. Don't question the election. One, we discussed this last week. We've been questioning election outcomes since the beginning, uh, since like since Adams and Jefferson, more or less. And if you want people to trust the outcome, then quit creating distrust with the process. That's the problem. Exactly. So, all right, man. Well, you ready to get on with the show? Ladies and gentlemen, we will be doing this week in history and book and movie recommendations after the conversation with our good friend Josiah Osgood. Now, you may remember him from last season. He's the one who did the translation on Salas, uh, his famous work. And this one is how to con- how to stop a conspiracy. So, Josiah Osgood, he's a professor of classics at Georgetown University. I would never have been able to get into that college, ever. Um, I could barely get into Sam Houston. Anyways, he's published several books, including Caesar's Legacy, Civil War, and the Emergence of the Roman Empire, Turia, a Roman woman's civil war, Rome in the making of a world state, 150 BCE to 20 CE, How to Stop a Conspiracy, the one I just mentioned, An Ancient Guide to Saving a Republic by Salus, and his latest work, it is called Uncommon Wrath, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic. I think we're, one, it's going to be an interesting conversation because it's the Roman Republic. It's ancient Rome. It's Caesar. It's Cato, Cicero, Pompey, all those guys. But at the same time, I think we're going to be able to relate uh, what happened 2,000 plus years ago to things that we experience here in our own Republic of the United States of America. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, our buddy Josiah Osgood is with us. Josiah, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Great to be with you guys. I am uh, here in England tonight uh, speaking to you. What part of England are you in? I'm in Oxford. Oh, Oxford. Well, hey, (laughs) I wouldn't mind being there right now. I'm feeling smarter already. Yes. Me too. You going to stop at Cambridge too while you're at it? I'm not sure about on this trip, but uh, maybe next time. But uh, yeah, Oxford is is a very inspiring place. But uh, I guess it was used in um, some of the Harry Potter films. So there's actually lots of Harry Potter tourism going on here, um, including the main library. So you go to the main library to do your work, and um, and then you see all these people on the Harry Potter pilgrimage. So I figured out that's what's going on. Well, you know, when I was uh, visiting Harvard, I went to the, uh, I snuck into the dining hall. Apparently, they only allow students in there. So I went through the exit and uh, got to go inside there and and looked at it, looked at it for a bit. And then they noticed me and they immediately threw me out. But uh, my understanding is, is it's, um, the architecture was, um, was copied from what they saw in Oxford. Yeah, it's this, the Gothic style, definitely, which became popular in college campuses in the U.S. in the 
I think the early 20th century. Did you tell them that all you were doing was you're looking for a hot dog? No, I told I just told them I'm I'm a Yale man and I was uh, you know looking for you know a, a girl to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Obviously, we want to talk about your new book, Uncommon Wrath. You had talked to us about this book, the last episode that we had you on, which was the first one, which was last season. So we're really excited to have you on. We had talked about the first time we had you on about the Cataline Conspiracy. Um, this was the one that you did for Princeton University Press, um, which is the translation from Salas, uh, his work. So I guess my first question is, so we talked about the Cataline conspiracy last time and we're talking about Cato and Caesar. Is this where the showdown starts with Cato and Caesar? Yeah, very much so. So this uh, book is, is not a translation. This is my own narrative history. And it's really about two of the most extraordinary Romans, Julius Caesar, who's familiar to everyone, the great conqueror, great writer, great lover, a great politician. And then it's about his arch rival, his nemesis, really, a man named Cato. And um, they had a rivalry over many years, uh, ultimately came to civil war. But it really did start with the conspiracy of Catiline. And this was a senator who was sort of disgruntled, plotting to to overthrow the Roman government. And there was a very fierce debate about what to do about him and some of his associates. And Julius Caesar sort of came down on the side of leniency. And Cato looked like the Senate, you know, who was deciding this was going to go that way. And then Cato, who was a little bit younger and sort of just getting started in his political career, he just destroyed Caesar in the debate completely and said that these guys who have been caught had to be executed in the fashion of the earlier Romans. And um, not only that, he sort of smeared Caesar personally in this debate and really took him on. And there was no looking back after that. Well, so you have Caesar wanting leniency and then Cato, the younger, wanting, hey, an immediate execution. Um, so they had both grown up with the Civil War, Sola's Civil War, and they had seen the aftermath of what had taken place. How did Sola's Civil War affect both of them? And did that, I guess, that aftermath or that experience sort of play out in this debate? The Roman Republic kind of really ended sort of around the year 30 BC, let's say, uh, in this sort of very long and violent civil war. But one of the key things to understand is that there'd actually been about 50 years earlier a first civil war and that war ended and peaceful government was restored um, but the wounds were still sort of there and they were not entirely healed 
And I, I think one of the important um, things we can learn from Roman history really is just how hard, just how hard it is to end civil wars. They're not like foreign wars, you know, where you go back home and have your victory parade, VE day or whatever it is. Um, you know, you you have to bring everyone back together. And if there were atrocities committed, which is very common in civil war, that's going to be very hard to forgive. And, you know, think of modern Spain. They're still grappling with the, some of the unfinished business. The U.S. Civil War obviously had a long and, and difficult aftermath. Okay, so there was this first civil war. And Caesar and Cato were both basically kids. Or Caesar was a very young man, teenager. And he kind of got dragged into it because of uh, family connections. And actually for a brief period sort of had to go into hiding because he thought he might be in danger. He was okay. But, uh, you know, he belonged to a great political family as did Cato. So it was sort of in a way expected that they, they would get involved in this war. Now, Cato was a little bit younger. He, he really was more of a, a, an early teenager. And we sort of get the story told by his biographers that he was very upset at the killing that was going on and sort of thought this victorious general Sulla was a tyrant uh, because he became dictator and was sort of lopping off the heads of his enemies. So, so the war, you know, I think it really did affect both of them. It left Caesar with this sense that his own security might be in, at risk. Um, but also he, he was always sort of concerned, concerned about this issue of leniency, right? Trying not to carry out the, the full atrocities of war. Um, Cato, Cato sort of was left with this sense of injustice, right? And this real fear of strong men marching into the city and taking it over. And that kind of became one of the big principles of his life. So if we fast forward to the Catalan conspiracy, right? In a way, their positions sort of make sense that Caesar says, yes, we have a problem, but you know, we want to deal with it in a way that won't create as many difficulties for us afterwards. So let's show some leniency. And Cato is saying, no, these guys tried to overthrow the Republic. We have to deal with them very severely to sort of stop the threat, to prevent others from trying to do so again. Now, does, is this more, would you say, a reflection of the Senate, or was it a reflection of how well Cato was as a speaker? Because, you know, I would think that senators would look at Caesar and think, you know, he's the more seasoned person. Here's this, uh, here's this rash kid. Uh, he needs to wait his turn. Um, or was it kind of like, you know, the battles that we see between AOC and Nancy Pelosi, where Pelosi is trying to keep the old guard, but AOC is coming in with some of the new kids. Um, so, so what do you think it was? Was it more that Cato was a great speaker or a reflection of the Senate? I mean, wh what was it that caused the people, the, the senators to uh, rally behind uh, Cato's speech? Yeah. Yeah, fun analogy there. Um, and I suppose it's kind of true in a lot of a lot of 
democratic political systems, right? If you are kind of younger and trying to make a name for yourself, trying to get established, right? You you might tend to do some more extreme things, right? Or um, pick on somebody a little bit older, more established to try to make a name for yourself. I think a rivalry is, you know, it's a really good way to gain publicity. And of course, think about sports rivalries, right? Everyone gets into those. And Roman politicians definitely cultivated these rivalries um, because it could be good for for getting themselves known. So I think that is part of what was going on with Cato is um, it, it was a matter of principle for him, um, the stance that he took. And the Senate, uh, you know, it was sort of wavering because initially initially they sort of thought maybe they should get rid of these guys, which was a very extreme thing to do. Um, but there were some precedents in earlier Roman history and, you know, th these were considered enemies. Um, but then Julius Caesar gave his speech. He said, wait a minute, let's show a little caution. He actually came up with this idea we could imprison them for life, which would have been a new punishment in Rome. But then Cato came in and, and sort of got everyone back to that first position. No, we have to act now. We have to take an extreme step to save the Republic. And, you know, you could sort of see that was in the tradition of Rome, right? That the ancestors, you know, if the Republic was at risk, you did what it took. There was a story, it was kind of probably mythological, but the Romans believed it, you know, that the very first consul, the very first um, person in charge of the Republic had to kill his own son because he was conspiring to overthrow the newly established government. So Cato sort of tapped into something, I think, that spoke to to many Romans. Um, but definitely he was sort of, uh, it's not the first word that leaps to mind, but he was a little bit of a young punk as, as Roman, younger Roman politicians kind of had to be to rise up the ranks. Now, would you say that it was because of the Civil War that or the earlier civil war, that that's why that, that, you know, they may have had those resentments and they're like, you know, the hell with them. Let's just kill them. I don't want to deal with this anymore. This is kind of one of the, the haunting questions of, of the late Roman Republic and, and civil war, right? As, as we were talking about, um, but that was in my view, one of the wounds that was still kind of open in a way was in, in that earlier civil war, uh, there were a lot of atrocities. Uh, people were killing each other, grabbing each other's estates. And obviously they wanted to end that. There was pretty much, you know, universal agreement that wasn't the way to run your state. Um, but it, it probably did in a way kind of brutalize a whole generation. Um, even if people were were trying to restore peaceful self-government and, you know, made some of these things a little bit more thinkable that, um, you know, those of us um, who've, who've lived in, in more peaceful times uh, find quite shocking. But I think it was a bit easier, um, a, bit, a bit easier for them to think in those terms. And and as we said, they kind of had this um, 
this mythology to their early history, right, was filled with, with some very violent episodes and and tyrannicide, you know, the fear of of a dictator could justify in extreme situations killing him. Well, it's funny that you, you mentioned uh, Spain. Um, you know, they had their civil war about, what, 80, 80 years ago, at 36 to yeah. 39. And um, I remember I was watching the movie For Whom, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and there's a scene where they are throwing their uh, captured prisoners over a, over a bridge. I mean, it was a very tall bridge. Um, and, but come to find out, I mean, that was widespread. That was going on all over Spain. You captured your enemy, you killed them. You know, we hear, we hear people say, oh, you know, if if we captured the enemy, we need to treat them, uh, with respect. But during a civil war, it seems that the, the, uh, atrocities or, or what you did to your captured prisoners, the, the consequences were far deadlier than if it was between one nation and another. So my my question, because um, you had mentioned that Cato had sort of based his idea on on principle of getting rid of these uh, conspirators for treason, um, and it was almost like it seemed to me like almost like a military decision. And you sort of put Julius Caesar as the guy with military experience, as far as okay, we've got treason, we're going to put these people, these guys, to death. But it seems to me that Caesar also had his principle of habeas corpus. Like, these guys need to go to trial first, even if it's already a sort of done deal that they're guilty for this. But we still need to, because they're Romans, they still have their right to trial. Um, how, how did this, did this come back to bite the Roman Republic by just eliminating the the right to trial, the habeas corpus. Yeah, so so that's why this this debate is um, is very poignant in some ways, and you know it's the climax of this history that Sallust wrote of the Catiline conspiracy. You know, all the action is Catiline early on, and what's his latest plot? And you know, he's kind of a great baddie, but. Uh, but Sallust, towards the end of the work, moves to the debate, and that's really where the drama is. And and that's exactly right. Um, you, you know, Cato is sort of in the short term proven right in the sense that the very grave act of uh, executing these conspirators, there had been evidence found against them, um, so it, it wasn't completely bogus. But this very this very grave act, right? It it did prove to be expedient in the sense that a lot of the supporters melted away, and probably saved you know saved some of the lives of soldiers who would have had to have been sent there to put down this army that was kind of mustering. Okay, so that's the one hand. But yeah, then on the other hand, you have Julius Caesar who very much was kind of warning the Senate, this will um, come back practically to cause problems for you, but also would be open to abuse, right? Once you start sort of letting senators just on a you know line vote say that we can kill some of our colleagues, this is an extremely, 
extremely dangerous precedent. And that's kind of the point of of Caesar's speech. And, and, you know, in a way, you can sort of look at the civil war that would come later that Caesar would fight in as sort of reflecting that same mentality that he was warning against, right? That if, if we view somebody as enough of a threat, we'll take up arms. So yeah, I, it, Caesar kind of, you know, if you're with George Washington, that generation of, of Americans, Caesar's the great villain. And they, you know, they tossed around the name Caesar as an insult. I was um, reminded the other day reading something that uh, Alexander Hamilton called Aaron Burr, the embryo Caesar, you know, ultimate put down in late 18th century America. But, um, but part of the point of my book, right, is to show that, you know, actually Caesar, Caesar does have principles as well. Um, and, and that's part of the tragedy of this is these different viewpoints come into collision. So you have um, eventually it's just that's what's great about this book is that it, it pinpoints a lot of the political maneuvering, not just with Caesar and Cato, but a, a whole ton of other people, including the alliance between Caesar, Pompey and Crassus. Tell tell me, um, how did that alliance come together and then also how did it fall apart so the book is is fun these i mean if you kind of like political intrigue this is a great period and of course some of the moves look very familiar uh but then other things are a little bit more distinctive and that's what makes history fun right so the roman politicians for instance used marriage alliances a lot to forge new deals and then the new alliances you know you sort of marry somebody's daughter right to ally with him and then conversely if he wanted to break off a political partnership you would just send a notice of divorce and of course women had a part to play in this too actively they could you know support their own family versus their husbands so it, it's important background sort of for understanding this big alliance that you just mentioned, right? Which is um, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. So what happened basically was um, Cato pissed all of them off um, in different ways. He was kind of the rising star now um, after the Catiline conspiracy. And he, he really wanted the Republic to be one of virtue. And everyone should, should sort of be perfect, as perfect as possible and not corrupted by money, right? And, and money, money's influence was growing in the Republic. You know, you had to have a fancy house increasingly to get anywhere in politics. And Cato was sort of always trying to fight that. So he gets into these, these battles. Um, he also thought there were too many wars going on and, you know, Commanders were sort of almost fomenting wars just so they could pull in plunder. So, so Cato didn't like um, Pompey because Pompey was kind of the great general. And he'd been off in the East, spectacular victories, came back to Rome wearing what he said was the cloak of Alexander the Great. <laughs> this is a side of the man's ambitions. Okay. 
So Cato sort of was trying to wreck some of Pompey's plans, especially to give land to his soldiers. Caesar came back from a war in Spain. Cato said, I don't think you should get a victory parade and get to stand for the consulship at the same time. So he thwarted Caesar. And Crassus, Crassus was a bit more interested in money at this point than military glory. So that principle of, of using money for power. And he had sort of various um, friends he was trying to help out in the business community. Cato scotched that too. So what happened was he drove the three of them um, into an alliance. Caesar and Pompey had sort of been working before. And because of their wealth they had, the military glory, their connections, uh, their popularity with, with ordinary citizens, the three of them you know, together had a huge amount of power. And kind of to solidify things, um, Caesar then actually betrothed his daughter, his only child, his beloved daughter, Julia, to Pompey. And that marriage actually proved to be, so far as we can tell, quite happy. And, you know, Pompey was quite in love with his young wife. And um, Caesar would go off to fight, fight this long war in Gaul, but his daughter, Julia, was there in Rome and had the very important job of sort of keeping Pompey on the side of, of Caesar. Um, now, they both disliked Cato, so that kept them together. But, you know, they're starting to become rivals themselves because Caesar is gaining military glory and maybe Pompey's not actually the greatest general after all. So, um, yeah, Cato, Cato sort of tactically was successful in blocking all three individually. But then he created this monster by bringing them all together. So you have um, in your book, it's it stood out to me when I was reading it. And it's there's so many parallels that we can take for modern day uh, when we look at the Roman Republic. Uh, and I think that that may get overplayed. It, it may not. Um, but there are a ton of similarities. And this reminded me a lot of what goes on in the American um, politics today, especially our federal government. But you wrote on here, and this is about obviously Cato and Caesar. You wrote by making the position of consul far more independent from the Senate than it ever had been. Caesar eroded the ability of the Senate to adjudicate future disputes. And that right there just reminds me of current, like the, how the executive, uh, power has, has grown over over the decades here in the U.S. You added, uh, and yet the chain reaction of partisanship was not the creation of one politician alone. Cato's obstruction and boycotts were in their own way revolutionary and damaging, both inciting Caesar's escalation and precluding any alternative solution. In trying to throttle Caesar, Cato had throttled compromise, an essential feature of politics. Both sides had reasons for what they were doing, but together they were undermining the Republic. This is going to be less about the Roman Republic and more about what's going on in our current state of political affairs. Like both sides are at fault. Why is that? Why does it seem that it's always been difficult for either side to accept that truth? Yeah. So obviously when I was writing the book, uh, you know, I tried to stay very true to the history and 
this book kind of grew out of course I've been teaching for many years. Um, but when I was writing a paragraph like that, of course, yeah, how could I not have been thinking somewhat or been inspired by by kind of current events? So yeah, politics, right? It it does need to be a fight. You know, you you sort of or or an argument, let's put it a little more positively sometimes. You know, you you have scarce resources, you have to make decisions on on how to use them, what what is the best path forward. So I accept all of that. Um, the problem is that sometimes uh, you can sort of get into a situation, right? Where um, one side, and it's hard ever to say who actually really does it first. You know, of course, if you're highly partisan, you'll know it was the other side, right? But, you know, one side goes a little more extreme. And then the other side sort of feels justified and doing the same thing, right? And as as each side gets a little more extreme, right, they may start to say, well, and this is where I think the Romans, you know, really probably even sort of influenced some of our rhetoric, you know, well, if this is allowed to happen, it will be the end of the Republic. You know, they start speaking in those terms. And once you kind of get into that mindset, it becomes easier to start breaking norms. And I think that's kind of what you, you're referring to there, right? With, you know, possible um, growth of, of executive power. And you could think of, you know, this was an issue in the 1930s, right? With, with Franklin Roosevelt and, you know, Congress didn't want to give him everything or he had a problem with the Supreme Court, right? So he would, he would sort of test, float the idea of, you know, increasing the number of Supreme Court justices for example, right? And, you know, that's, of course, again, an issue in our, our politics. So, so everyone's being kind of logical. I think that's, that's part of what's frustrating in, in those situations of escalating polarization. But the problem is collectively, you sort of risk, you risk destroying the whole system. And I, you know, we don't want to say every single argument, oh, it's going to be civil war and the end of things. I'm not that pessimistic. And I think people have to stand up for what they believe. But but if both sides are always just going to the extremes, um, it, it at least the Roman Republic shows it can become quite a dangerous dynamic. Um, so we can talk more about that. But but I think that's kind of the explanation is that it's logical um, for one party or one one person, one politician, but then sort of collectively it starts to become corrosive. Now, is this what you see as the fate of the United States? And I wanted to ask you that one. And number two, if you had to choose, if you were told who was the good guy, Cato or Caesar, what what would be your answers? Yeah, and I, I, if you guys have opinions on that too, I'd be curious. Um, so, uh, I think the point of the book is that it it's sort of a possible fate for republic, and just something that we all need to be aware of. Um, unpleasant as it is, right? We we all can sort of do with reminders that that 
republics, right? I, I think we have a better set of institutions in some ways than the Romans did. Um, so that's an important difference. I, I think we have a bit more um, of, of a universal commitment to popular sovereignty kind of written throughout our constitution compared to the Romans where the, the Senate really kind of thought they could just do whatever they wanted. Um, so they're in competition with with the popular assembly. Okay, so but but all of that being said, yeah, I think I think Rome is sort of a, a cautionary tale, right? That a republic that you know actually functioned very well in many ways for hundreds of years can suddenly um, become unhealthy, right? And and even can if it gets locked into a long civil war ultimately destroy itself and you know rome doesn't disappear and in many ways the lives of of many romans actually continue to do just fine under the the roman empire that followed but uh you know if you care about sort of peaceful self-government right this is a a possible outcome and and should caution us um as i said about always sort of going to the extremes and and failing to remind ourselves about what we have in common and and how we keep that keep that as a part of our culture, a part of our debates, a part of our politics. Um, that's why Abraham Lincoln, to me, is sort of one of the great the great leaders. Is that I feel throughout the Civil War, he always tried to tack to doing what he had to do to win, but reminding everyone of constitutional values. Well, would you say well, that's is... my answer to that question? Oh, and we can get to Caesar and Cato, and which one I'm actually secretly rooting for uh -huh. in a minute. Well, that's interesting because Alan and I were discussing uh, before we we came on here about Abraham Lincoln and yeah, like how similar this situation was, um, and uh, I mean that's that's a really a completely different conversation that would be great like the correlations between um yeah. what was going on in the roman republic at that time and then abraham lincoln during that civil war um yeah that'd be great stuff when it comes to the compromises that you need on the political battlegrounds your book sort of starts and ends with well there's a lot of themes but one of the themes is Caesar and Cato, during their debate, are presenting their position from the idea, like, they both have a point in their position, but they both feel like they are the ones who are right about the situation. And this doesn't seem to change uh, throughout. Both of them are, they just, they just stick to the point, like, I'm right you're wrong, and we have to fight this out. And like you said, it eliminates it eliminates the the possibility of compromise. Do you think that that's sort of like where we are um, as a country, where it's like I was talking to some people uh, just last night, and they're like, there is no talking anymore between the Democrats and the Republicans. It's like now it's it's complete factionalism, and you've got one tribe over here, another tribe over here, and you cannot mix the two. I mean, you think that's where we are right now, and do you think we will get out of that if that is where we are right now? 
Yeah, I, I do think we're more polarized than, you know, even earlier in my own lifetime. I mean, I can remember a less polarized politics where, um, you know, I don't want to, I mean, I just think about the office of the presidency, right? I mean, I think, it, you know, when I was younger, it, it sort of commanded more universal respect, right? Which doesn't mean, you know, we should put the president on a pedestal and accept everything every president does. Of course not. This is a democracy and people go to the ballot box to, you know, vote out a president who's not, not, um, performing well or or sort of stands for things that they don't want and, and they find the competitor preferable. Um, but I, I think if we we sort of lose the sense that, you know, the president is sh should sort of have any authority, that that can become, if we don't like the president, that can become a dangerous situation or any of our institutions, we could go down the list, you know, the Congress, the the Supreme Court and so on and so forth. So I, yeah, I am worried. I mean, I, and we could all sort of list our favorite examples of, of things. You know, a lot of people will say Trump is the biggest threat to the Republic. I'm not unsympathetic to that argument. Some people are not unsympathetic to the, some of the complaints raised. Other people will say, well, you know, like to give a smaller example, um, Sheldon Whitehouse, um, I remember issued a tweet saying it's time to go into executive beast mode because um, Congress was deadlocked on something, right? And and you know you sort of understand why he's saying that, but but that seems to me to be a sort of path where institutions can start to to break down as people get frustrated over the deadlock on various issues. So I, I just wish personally that we would sort of um, could avoid that um, where, where possible. So so I, I don't think we're poised, you know, quite on, on the brink of, of the civil war that broke out in the year 50 BC. Um, but accepting that that we need to make things work in our institutions and and sort of favoring those who sometimes compromise would be good steps forward well you you mentioned the uh, the extremism now yeah. would you say that a lot of the politicians have extreme positions and that's a reflection on them or would you say that it's more that um the reaction or the response to some positions that the opponents will say is the wrong way to go and they will end up taking extreme measures to put a stop to it. Yeah. So the, so the question is, is some politicians actually have extreme positions and then others sort of accept it as, as a sort of necessary evil is kind of that what you're well, saying? You have to, uh, you know, okay, let's say right, like the current situation that we have today with the Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, however you want to look at it. Um, now, I, I am, I, we've never, we've never hit it. I myself, I am a conservative. Uh, we have, we have a, um, a county commissioner here in Houston, Harris, uh, Harris County commissioner uh, named Lena Hidalgo that, Many of us think 
we see her as an extremist. So you can you can go the normal route and try to fight them, or when that doesn't seem to work, then I, you know. And I'm thinking of uh, some of the discussions that you were talking about, where you get sick and tired, and sometimes you have to take an extremist measure to combat what we see as extremism. So you know, right. what is the worst? I mean, who's at fault there? What is it because there's an extremist, or is it the response that becomes extreme? is going to be the, um, that, I hope I'm making sense at this point, but I, I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, you're sort of capturing what I, I was trying to call kind of the, the, the chain reaction, right? You know, which is sort of explaining how these, how these things happen. And I, I don't really have an easy answer for you there. Um, I, part of the point of my, book though right is is just just sort of use one well-documented historical example to to sort of say um on on either side right any side in these partisan debates going more extreme going nuclear going executive beast mode however we want to put it right i mean it it might seem um justified it might seem necessary and and people may think it is but but it could lead, potentially could lead to, you know, carry to the logical extreme, to a very bad place for, for democracy. So I think, I, I guess I would just say I would want people to sort of be, be aware of that, that sort of possibility. Um, it doesn't answer, you know, tactically and or, or sort of on a, on a micro level what you do in any one particular situation and, and sort of where you're going to fight the fight. But, um, but I think that's kind of the the cautionary that that I draw from this material. Okay, because I was, you know, I'd read some information about the interwar years, and you know, for centuries there was a certain order that that took place in Europe, um, and then with World War One, when that ended, um, there was a lot of socialist slash communist extremism that was taking over much of Western Europe or threatening to take over. I, uh, I know Bavaria, uh, for a short time, be, um, became communist. Uh, you had the Spanish Civil War was a war that ended up becoming communist versus fascist. And so to combat fascism, a lot of the people felt, well, we need to be on the side of the fascists. And, you know, for me, that that's something that that is a cautionary tale cautionary tale also for the United States, which I think this kind of falls into place. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison um, of a kind of situation where they're you're moving to extremes. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like sort of like when you take a rubber band and you stretch it as far as it'll go, like eventually it comes back into like you, you clash. That's sort of like the political clash. I mean, and this is the cautionary tale, the Roman Republic, but also what was happening in um, early 20th century Europe and Spain is a prime example um, where you end up having a clash. And the clash, I want to get to the sort of the end of your book, Augustus becomes emperor and he takes the name of Caesar, but he also, as you state in the book, he works to implement a lot of the rules that Cato worked toward. And so you have this, this clash that took place between Caesar and Cato 
and you don't you don't lose everything but it's no longer the Roman Republic that everybody knew it changed and I think that is also the the cautionary tale is like you you may not lose everything but everything that you knew before could change like we may still have this country we may have a we may remain like a, a powerful economy with a powerful military we still may wind up with 50 states or not but if you expand so far to the left and to the right there is only one thing that can happen it's sort of like gravity like if it goes up it has to come down like eventually it has to come back eventually that that rubber band pulls back or breaks and so something does change and with that change going back to the roman republic who do you think had the most impact on the future of rome was it caesar or was it cato yeah okay good so so now i get to reveal which team i'm rooting for after having just warned about all the evils of partisanship right um okay so i think you know caesar created the future more for sure, uh, for, for Rome. And, uh, you know, in a way, I'd never even thought about it till I was writing this book, but that the, the very title, uh, Caesar, of course, continued to be used through World War I, SARS and the Kaiser and, and Germany. Um, so, you know, talk about an impact, right? Um, he, he was kind of an, an empire builder and and had more of a plan for ordinary romans you know join my army fight with me i'll give you land and land is key to honor in rome and you know you may as cato and his friends said this is the ultimate handout it's going to make people loyal to him uh but the the fact is rome was an empire and it was acquiring a lot of land um in war a lot of wealth and the question is what do you do with it and the ordinary people wanted wanted part of it so so caesar kind of had a, a sort of a plan that i think met the needs of of sort of more romans from that point of view right and so he looks forward to to kind of the roman empire as we call it um Cato, right, is proven right in the sense that, you know, all of his denunciations of what the strong men are doing prove to be correct. That they go out and fight these wars, uh, sometimes unnecessary wars. They're pulling in all this money, killing innocent people, um, come back to rome and destabilize the political situation using their wealth so i kind of do found myself as i was writing the book you know having an appreciation for caesar um in in many ways and sort of understanding why he prevailed and and why his politics won out but i do sort of you know have have the kind of george washington sympathy for for cato and think that he uh you know he was somebody who really was in his own way trying to to make 
um, Republican government work, to make peaceful self-government work. And he made a lot of mistakes, you know, and, and I present those throughout the book. And that's part of why it is is sort of a such a good story, right? As you can sort of see him doing things that that look right, but but it's going to lead to a terrible outcome. And the the last outcome that he wanted. So that that's kind of where I I fall down on it. I don't know if you, you know, reading the book were sort of cheering on one or the other. Or, found them both appalling or both admirable in a way. I mean, yeah, I think they're, they're different possibilities. Yeah. When I was reading the book, um, when I got through, well, actually while I, while I was reading it, there were points in it that I, I, I liked both Caesar and Cato. And then there were moments where I, I couldn't stand Caesar or Cato, but honestly yeah. there were more points in time where I couldn't stand Cato more than Caesar. And I, I think it was because it was a constant, Cato had a constant distrust of Caesar. Um, but he also had a distrust of Pompey, but then he started to utilize Pompey in order to push Caesar out. And so you see a little bit of the hypocrisy there, but it's politics playing out. If I, if I had to choose, I would choose it like this. I like Caesar the best, but I respect Cato the most. And it's, I respect Cato the most because he wants to keep the Republican principles in play and keep the Republic together, despite the fact that he well knows that the Republic, to an extent, is gone as far as it's gone so far, which is, I mean, you, you point out in the book a lot that he would, he would dress down. He would look the part of a guy who is very modest, very humble. And he wanted everybody to follow that trend. And we talk about that a lot on the show. And even George, speaking of George Washington, George Washington and the founding fathers talked about that. It's like, you can't have a, a Republic a successful republic if the individual is corrupt. So if the individuals are corrupt, then you're going to have a very corrupt republic. And Cato seemed to me like he was trying to push everybody to go back sort of to the beginning and sort of clean up their individual lives. And if you did that, you would have a good, clean republic. Caesar was probably like, look, man, <laughs> It's like George Costanza bringing up Bozo the Clown. You're living in the past, man. You're living in the past. And I think Caesar saw the future as an empire. Yeah, I mean, those who try to turn back the clock really often don't succeed. Um, I, I think you nailed that. And, and that is, you, you know, Cato actually did some very constructive things, Um that sort of worked and, and were embraced later by Augustus too, about sort of trying to stamp out some of the corruption that, that was a real problem. Nobody doubts that. Um, so, but yeah, he, he sort of thought that if everyone could just kind of be virtuous perfectly as he was, then this would be the path forward. And, didn't think as much about sort of institutional solutions sometimes to problems. So 
I think that is, you know, part of why the, the, to go back to the 1790s, right, why they were so fascinated by, by this generation of Roman history, right, is, is they're confronting sort of some of the same problems, you know, and even down to things like, you know, how should, how should the president be addressed or what sort of uniform should Washington wear, right? And, and I sort of, I mean, I'm no expert in, in this, the early American Republic, right? But you can sort of see them having some of these same worries, right? Like, should, you know, if we're too, if our executive is too imperial, he'll be like a Caesar and we don't want to go that route. But at the same time, you know, we need to, to be a strong nation and have a strong leader. And so, yeah, I mean, Caesar, there's sort of a, a Caesarian tendency in people like Hamilton and so on. Um, that I, I think um, for efficient government. So you're a Cato guy. I'm more of a, a Caesar guy. Alan, what are you? Tiebreaker. <laughs> Don't screw around, man. I'm a Jefferson man, so there you go. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to say, I would say Jefferson was probably... Cato, and uh, Caesar was Hamilton. Am I right? Would you say? Yeah, and I know uh, it was a John a John Adams. He tried to juggle. He tried to juggle things between Hamilton and Jefferson until they had the um, the Alien and Sedition Act, where we have to protect we have to protect the uh, the United States. And he passed that law. So that sounds like executing. That's something that uh, Cicero did. So there, I'm always going to be on the side of the Jeffersons. I'll be on the side of Cato in this case. George Jefferson? <laughs> Probably half the people who watch the show don't know who he is, but... Uh, yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, this, this is why I think, this is why I think I'm kind of a Rand Paul guy, so... Yeah, sort of like a, you don't like, I, I think if we had more of that where we had politicians who didn't like either side, even the side that they're supposed like on, I think we would, we would do much better. Um, but we've gotten to the point where those are few and far between where you can just sit there and not be such a party party boy or party girl like you're just there for the party you're not there for the country and i think you get you get a both of these things with with Cizo, Cizo, caesar and cato like in many ways they are doing what they're doing because they they do believe that it is uh for the best for the country and not so much uh for their party and i think probably cato more than caesar it's like if we can just get back to and and that's that's sort of the hope and prayer with a lot of people in this country is like if we can just get back to compromise debate um, and not such factionalism uh, as James Madison wrote about a lot in the Federalist Papers. Yeah, but the pro the problem is is that in in today's society we have you know you know if you look at at the debates between the founding fathers, they had the same goal. They really did have the same goal, but it was just a matter of getting there. You know, what, what was the means? If you looked at 
even some of the loyalists versus the patriots, they weren't that far apart. They really weren't, you know, but it came down to, are we going to be loyal to the king or are we going to be wanting a new nation? But they all wanted the same thing practically. But now I'm going to say that, you know, extremism is what is going on in which you have you have many who don't even want an American nation. We have, um, you know, but um, this is going to be my view. I don't know about everybody's, but but I, I'm now of the opinion that we need to just limit government altogether because the, many of these politicians are just going to go in there and they're going to use the power to better themselves rather than better the nation. So take away as much of their power as possible so that we can, you know, work educate our kids, and uh, go and watch the uh, gladiators fight at the big stadiums that we have subsidized with our uh, taxes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Go Strohs. Go Strohs. Well, hey, Josiah. Yeah. Well, I think we all can agree we would prefer, um, you know, not that it was a nice life, but we we prefer the gladiators to fight than the politicians. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know what, maybe throw a politician in there every once in a while. See what happens. Yeah, see what happens. <laughs> that's that's what they did to the Christians in the, in the Roman Empire. To the lion. To the lion. Yeah, that uh, that was rough. Those were rough days. Um, yeah, so your book, Uncommon Wrath, I believe it comes out at the end of this month officially. Is that correct? Yep. End of November. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to be really important, like myself and Alan, to get a advance copy. Uh, you can't just be anybody, okay? You got to be somebody. And uh, I like to think that I'm somebody. Josiah, this was, this was a fun conversation. I knew it would be. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. And do you have anything else that you want to add as far as cautionary tell or your opinion on either of these individuals of Caesar and Cato and maybe something maybe that we can replicate as well uh yeah so um I, yeah I would just and and on something we said earlier right which is that even though this you know particular civil war had a, a really bloody course and a an awful ending, right? I I do think there's um, a lot a lot in this book for for people to sort of see in, in both of the figures I'm talking about that that's sort of interesting about politics and power and kind of some of the favorite chapters I enjoyed working on were sort of the earlier ones um, when you sort of see these two starting to advance in the political system and kind of. Cato taking on some of the vested interests um, that, that were powerful in Rome, like the corrupt civil servants running the treasury, for example. So I, I think there's some, uh, I think there's there's sort of things to admire in both of these, these figures I'm writing about. I would have found it a hard book to write if I sort of purely loathed either of them. So I, I would just, I would just leave it at, leave it at that. 
Well, all right. Well, hey, man, thanks again for joining us. Been a great uh, conversation. We've had you on now twice in two seasons. And whenever you put out another book, or maybe if we just want to talk about the Roman Republic, uh, yeah, we will yeah. bring you on again. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Josiah Osgood. Uh, it's such a fascinating topic, uh, ancient Rome. Uh, we, we had a discussion on the later ancient Rome, 410 AD, with our, with our friend uh, Don Hallway. Um, but it's always good to talk about the Roman Republic. Uh, it's one of my favorite conversations, one of my favorite topics, uh, I assume it's yours as well, Alan. I, I, I probably am wrong as I usually am. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a, it's a good subject. I mean, I've got I've got a lot of books on Rome anyway. Um, I think I got the like the Roman myths around here and the and a, and a lot of the history. You know, one of uh, and, and you know, I read the uh, the Aeneid. I don't know. Have you ever read the Aeneid? I haven't read all of it. Well, you, you should start with the Aeneid, but if you want to know the Aeneid, you have to know about the Trojan War. So you got to read the Trojan, you got to read the Iliad, and you don't have to read the Odyssey, but read the Iliad and, and read up. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple of people who have written books about the Trojan War itself. 
And that'll help you to understand the Aeneid. And then when you read the Aeneid, then you can move on into Roman history. But, you know, one of the ones that, one of the history that I find fascinating, which I don't seem to really find too much about, is is that Rome was a kingdom before it was a republic, before it became an empire. So, and you're talking about a long history from 753 BC to 476 AD, and that was for the Western Roman part, but the Eastern Roman part, it went on until the Turks captured Constantinople in 1453. So that is a very long history. You know, Romulus and Remus, right? That's that's who it is, uh, the founders of, of Rome. Um, yeah, that's correct. And they're like, uh, in mythologically, they would be descendants of, of, of uh, Aeneas, Prince Aeneas of Troy. And wasn't their mother a wolf? Well, uh, a wolf uh, fed them, if that's if that's what you're asking. But yeah, then there's, uh, I think in Paris, I know at least I saw it in Paris, at the Louvre, where they have a uh, little statue of uh, the, the she-wolf feeding uh, Romulus and Remus. Yeah, good stuff. But that would, that would have fallen, that would have fallen around the time of 753 B.C., because that's when, that's when the um, the kingdom was established. Yeah, a lot of stuff started happening uh, during that period of time, uh, and you know, in that in that region. So that's all. That's a fun, like your your eighth to fifth century, in particular, your fifth century BC is is fascinating and just a ton of fascinating. And you know what, you know, what's also interesting is the fact that if you look at when the Roman Republic came about, you, you had things going on in ancient Greece. Um, you know, the, uh, the early years of the Roman Republic were about the time that, uh, you know, like you had the battle of Thermopylae, King Leonidas, um, and then the Peloponnesian war. And that, those were all taking place during the early parts of the Roman Republic, and then Alexander going and destroying the Persian Empire, you know, that was, that was what, in the uh, 300 BC, or in the 300s BC, the 4th century BC, and uh, Rome hadn't even destroyed Carthage yet. Fascinating. Yep. Speaking yeah. of fascinating, um, how about we blow some minds with This Week in History? All right, so we talked to Josiah Osgood, and we mentioned his book, his translation of Sallust's work, uh, and it's called How to Stop a Conspiracy, an Ancient Guide to Saving a Republic. And this is about the Catiline Conspiracy um, that took place in 63 B.C., but we're for mine since we talked to Josiah, and it has a lot to do with his his book that he had uh, come out before Uncommon Wrath. Um, I figured this was fitting. It happened actually last week, so this is my last week in history, November seventh and the eighth. Um, the Catalan conspiracy is discovered on the seventh, and then it is presented to Cicero in the Senate. Um, and Cicero is like, Hey, we need to, you know, kill all these guys. And this is where the conversation, um, or the debate breaks out, uh, between Caesar and Cato. And obviously, as we discussed, you find out what ends up happening. Cato wins that argument. Uh, the five conspirators that are found in the Senate are 
executed without trial. Um, now, Catalina actually makes his escape uh, from Rome, and then he gets a whole bunch of people together. He makes war, and he's going to try to go into Rome and take over and everything, but he is actually killed, and this is one of the things that Sallust makes mention of, as well as uh, Josiah, that he was shot, or he was shot by arrows from the front, which was apparently noble because he wasn't shot in the back, meaning he wasn't a coward. He actually was fighting, um, and he, he didn't run. So, interesting, yes, uh, that's November 7th and 8th. That is my last week this week in history. All right. We are going to explore Operation Uranus. We're, so we're going to re- explore Uranus. Let's go. Let's, let's do, let's, uh, yeah, let's talk Uranus. All right. Um, see that book, Stalingrad, right there? All right. So, good book, by the way. You know, that should be one of my book recommendations for the for this week. But uh, we're going to talk about Operation Uranus, which began on November 19th of 1942. Okay, so what was that? Uh, before I go into it, I'll tell you a little background. Now, uh, when World War II began in Europe, uh, the Soviet Union and Germany, uh, along with Slovakia, invaded Poland. It wasn't just Germany invading Poland. So... The Soviet Union was the bad guy, and they were bad guys um, up until Germany decided, hey, you know, we're going to stab the Soviets in the back, which was uh, in, on, uh, in June 22nd of 1941. So the Soviets were getting their asses kicked really bad. Now, the following year, uh, in August, they, uh, Hitler wanted to take Stalingrad, which was named after the premier or the dictator, Joseph Stalin. So the German 6th Army um, stormed into Stalingrad, and there was, it was the, I want to say it was the bloodiest battle in the Second World War, probably one of the bloodiest battles in the history of warfare. Believe me, it's not a battle you would have wanted to have participated in. Um they could not get the Germans out, so uh, the, one of the uh, generals, the Soviet general, his name was uh, Georgi Zhukov, who would end up becoming one of the heroes of the Soviet Union, he proposed a plan that instead of trying to attack the Germans in Stalingrad, let's attack the flanks, uh, which was covered by the Italians and the Romanians because they were not as strong as the Germans. So that's what Operation Uranus was on November the 19th. They launched two. They launched a counterattack from two different areas. Uh, one of them was kind of to the northwest of Stalingrad. The other one was to the southeast of Stalingrad. And in a matter of four days, they met. So it was kind of a pincer movement, and they trapped like three hundred thirty thousand Germans inside Stalingrad when they did that. Now Hitler was like, "Nope, you cannot." I don't want you to escape. You have to stay. No, you're not gonna. You're not gonna retreat from one inch of ground. And uh, Reichsmarshal Reichsmarshal Goering said that he could he could continue to supply the Germans uh, with the Luftwaffe. Um, he really couldn't, but he stated that he could. Well, it got pretty nasty, and around uh, February the second, the Germans surrendered. Um, now. 
the, the general, uh, his name was Friedrich von Paulus, uh, he was promoted to field marshal. That'd be like being a five-star general. Uh, Hitler was like, he made him a, a field marshal so that he would be less likely to surrender. Well, Paul, von Paulus was like, screw you, I'm going to surrender anyway, which he did. And uh, they, you know, and that was around the time of Hitler's celebration of like his 10th year anniversary of becoming the uh, the prime minister of uh or the premier of, um, I'm sorry, the chancellor of Germany. It's a 10-year anniversary. So he decided, I'm just going to surrender around the time when he's trying to celebrate the 10 years. So so the uh, the Germans, the Romanians, the Italians, who are all trapped in the uh, encirclement, they marched off into captivity. And they were there for about, I think, about maybe 10 years, 12 years. When, the, when they finally returned home, there were only about 6,000 survivors left that's it out of 330,000 that initially went in there that were captured about 100,000 or so were were uh, sent into captivity only 6,000 Germans were left that's it so it was all because of uh, operation Neptune which began November 19th of 1942 crazy operation Neptune or operation that, what did Uranus? I say that I say I meant to say ah Neptune, Uranus, close enough. Operation Uranus. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me because we would have, uh, that would have looked bad. Hey, you're welcome. I I will always jump at my one opportunity every season. Well, you know, Uranus and Neptune are, uh, you know, you could sit there and say they're next to each other, but they're really not. There's a majorly vast, vast differences between uh, the, the two planets. Yeah, there's a vast black space in Uranus. I mean, between Uranus. <laughs> is that that's where they found the Klingons, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, that is this week in history. All right. Speaking of Stalin, Alan, have you ever watched the movie uh, "The Death of Stalin"? I know I've mentioned it a few times on the show. No, nah, I saw the uh, movie Stalingrad. The uh... The original no. one came out no. like in the early '90s. So, no, but no, n- no, nothing. I I have never seen any movie. You know what? The only movie I ever saw that had Stalin was uh, Enemy at the Gates. If I remember the sniper, yeah, uh, Zaitsev, Yasvitsi, Yasili, or something, Vasily, Vasily Zaitsev. Um, he did go and meet with Joseph Stalin, but I don't think I've ever seen a movie with Stalin. Okay, well, if you've got a chance, um, then pull up Death of Stalin. It is so good. Very, very dark humor. Yeah, I know. I know you've you've mentioned uh, you've mentioned that movie before. I, you know what? I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll see if I can find it and watch it. Now, if you want, now if you want something serious, watch Mr. Jones. That came out a couple of years, and that's about the the famine in Ukraine. That's a really good one. And it also does not put the New York Times in a very favorable light, as it should not have been, and it should not be today. Anyways, all right, book and movie recommendation. Obviously, uh, the book is Uncommon Wrath, um, How Caesar and Cato's Deadly Rivalry Destroyed the Roman Republic. You can learn a lot about two things two periods. You can learn a lot about the 
ancient Rome, Roman Republic during the time of Caesar and Cato, but you can also learn a lot about political maneuvering and how that affects us today, and you'll find a lot of similarities. Also, Princeton University Press puts out these Ancient Wisdom for Modern Readers books, and uh, Josiah has put together this one. This one came out, I guess, about a year or so ago, How to Stop a Conspiracy. I mentioned it earlier. Really good stuff. My movie has to do with Rome, and it's going to be Gladiator. One of my favorite movies of all time. I know it starts off um, a few hundred years after what goes on or a couple hundred years after uh, your Caesar and Cato situation with the all-wise, the all-knowing Marcus Aurelius. Um, So yeah, there you have it. There's my book and movie recommendation. All right, so my book, uh, actually I'm going to have a couple of them. Um, Obviously our good friend Josiah Osgood's book, Uncommon Wrath. Uh, Anything this guy puts out, you know, it's going to be good. So... um, uh, although I have not read it, um, you haven't given me my copy yet. Do I even have a copy? You didn't get a copy, because you are you and I am me. Yeah, plus the fact that I haven't been over to your place in quite some time. But I'm going to recommend that people get it, um, because uh, I- I've read uh, I've read some of his previous works, and, and he's, a, he's a fine writer, very fine writer. Um, I also want to recommend a couple of other books that also that kind of um you know was per our discussion uh one of them is called the uh the pacificus helvidius debates of 1793 to 1794 um it's about the debates between alexander hamilton and james madison and if you can see that without the reflection um so that's one of them. And, you know, during the discussion, we were talking about how you can have politicians with opposing views, but are they doing it for for the betterment of the country? Are they doing it for their own power? I do believe very strongly that Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, all those guys were debating to find the best way that our country uh, could operate. It, they weren't doing it to harm our nation. They wanted a strong country. They wanted uh, the states to be strong. They wanted everybody in the country to uh, live very well, which also leads into my next book called E Pluribus Unum. Now, this is by a guy uh, named uh, Forrest MacDonald, and it's about the formation of the American Republic uh, up to 1790. Can you see that very well? So, all right, you can see. Cool. So, anyway, um, so, you know, Osgood's book, it would be very good, um, as a kind of a warning for, you know, where where we could end up. And then these are for American history, which we need to learn from. Okay, so now in terms of movies, um, I know I've uh, recommended this before, but I'm going to do it again. Um, the Rome miniseries. Now, reason why, reason why I'm going to pick this one is because. Our good friend Dr. Stephen Harding said Harden said that this was probably the most historically accurate um, thing he's seen on TV. So if Dr. Stephen Harden says watch it, watch it. I'm also gonna say, throw this in. Now this isn't a movie, but if you want to see accuracy in life, watch comedian Bill Burr. 
I've been watching some of his, like, you know, when he's driving around Los Angeles. I've never seen a more truthful video than Bill Burr. So there you go. So if you want something serious, read Osgood's book. Read these books. If you want to have a little bit of fun, but it's real life, watch uh, Bill Burr. There you go. Those are my books and movies and videos and whatnot. Yeah, Bill Burr is absolutely legend. Uh, he is so good. He is so spot on. Um, you see the one? Did you see the one where he was um, critiquing fellow drivers in Los Angeles? No, I didn't. I haven't watched that one. I haven't seen that one. That was me. That was me. You know, I'm like, you know, and and I I've always warned girls that I've dated. When we're driving, you're gonna see the, <laughs> you're gonna see the absolute worst coming out of me, okay? So, and I warned them, I warned them what to expect. You know that uh, <laughs> you're gonna hear words coming out of my mouth. You're gonna wish, God, I wish I drove a tank. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I've had to experience that. I actually got to experience that earlier today uh, with with you on the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had to, uh, uh, you know, and I want to mention my good friend, Mark Davies, who uh, passed away um, on Monday, November the 7th. I went to go to, uh, I went to a funeral. Really great guy. He helped me out quite a bit during my high school days. So, yeah, I was at a wedding last night, and then I was at a uh, funeral this morning, so... I don't know which one is more deadly. Yeah, so more or less two funerals in a row. Well, you know, the, the I guess a funeral is going to be better for the person because, you know, they do rest. Yeah, yeah. And anyways, all right, moving on. And it's funny that you keep asking me, hey, do you see the book? Like, I'm on a different camera than you. So you're not even the same camera. <laughs> So I can't I can't see what you're putting up. Yeah, but you know the people don't need to know that. It's kind of like when you sit there, you know, like the weatherman where they go and and as you can see, you know, it's it's snowing over here. Oh no, I think they know. Although, although the, this is real. These, these are my my Stalingrad book is 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 real. That's not. Uh... Look, man, we've got we've got smart people who listen to this show. Not everybody is from Pennsylvania, so oh. <laughs> Did you All right, say, that's, did that's, you say that out loud? <laughs> that's it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, no offense, none taken. I'm quite certain. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, that is it for this episode of the Sons of History podcast. We will see you next week.